We'll start the message with the kids, and, and uh, I'm going to be talking some about signs, signs of the future. Jesus' disciples asked him about the sign of the end of the age. How do we know when the end of this age is, come, is, is, is here and that, that the kingdom is going to, going to begin? Would you like to know that? Well, well, there are signs, and there are other signs that tell you, and the purpose of a sign is to tell you something that's coming, right? A sign tells you something ahead, and you see signs. You probably saw signs on the way to church today, right? So, let's look at a couple signs. Maybe you can see, do you know what the signs mean? Can you interpret the sign? Anybody, what does that sign mean? That means stop. It doesn't say stop. It's not like our stop signs, but you knew it because you can interpret the signs. All right, next one. What does that one mean? Road construction. There's workers on the road. Watch out for them. Don't, uh, don't run over anybody. Okay, next one. There's one maybe you've seen before. Camel crossing. Watch out for camels on the road. Josh said, you go to Perspectives, you might wind up in the Middle East. So this is a sign that uh, Josh is going to need to know, right? He's going to need to interpret that. So the young guys caught, caught the, the, so some of the guys in the room heard, you went to Perspectives and you found a wife. Huh. Ah, and you went to Perspectives and you might go to the Middle East. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful package deal. Okay, next sign. Oh, also from the Middle East, the top one, uh, Tank crossing and a battlefield, this direction, okay? Those kind of go together, same theme. Are there any more signs? Oh, there's one. If you're up in Alaska, maybe you've seen that one. Okay. Moose, moose crossing. And here's one of my personal favorites from the kingdom of Swaziland. Yes, we drove by this sign, saw it on the road, and I said, what? Seriously? If I'm walking, if I'm on a bicycle, I'm supposed to watch out for lions and elephants? What do I do if I see one? But I was watching for them. You can be sure of that. All right. Next, next sign, a different kind of a sign. Jesus talked about you know the signs of the season, but you don't know to. This is fall coming. Fall is coming upon us. It means you have to get out and rake the leaves, and it means it's going to get colder soon. Okay? One more. A little harder to see. A storm. There's, a, there's storm clouds on there. It's, it's, it's maybe going to rain. You're not going to be like a you're not going to be like a weather reporter. You're going to have enough sense to come in out of the storm, okay? So a storm is coming, find shelter. There that that one is probably close to where where we're going to be going in the word this morning. There is a storm coming. Find shelter. So Jesus' disciples asked him what is the sign of the end of the age? His disciples were enamored by the beauty, the glory of that temple in Jerusalem that Herod the apostate had, had remodeled and expanded. And it was a glorious building. It was one of the greatest temples on earth at the time. And yet Jesus said, don't get caught up in this. Don't be distracted by the wrong religious stuff. There's going to be a day coming when not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. You can go to Jerusalem today, and you can still see some of those stones that were pushed off the Temple Mount after every stone was taken off one another, and they're still laying on the pavements of that first century street down below. Jesus was right. And yet they asked him, well, then what, are the, what is the, the sign of your coming, and what is the sign of the end of this age? And Jesus gave them the sign that this age is ended, the kingdom is coming. Would you like to know what it is? Would you like to know how to know definitively... You don't have to go read people's books and stuff. That You can know what, what if, if when this happens, this world age is ended and Jesus will be 
coming and establishing his kingdom. Would you like to know what that sign is? There's one particular one. First, let me tell you what it's not. Jesus in Matthew 24, as he's answering the disciples' questions, first of all, he told them what it was not. He said, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. These will take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There are going to be famines and earthquakes. These are just the beginning of birth pains. They're going to deliver you up for tribulation and persecution. You're going to be put to death. You're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many are going to fall away, and they're going to betray others, hate one another. False prophets are going to arise, leading others astray. There will be an increase in lawlessness, and because of the increase in lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, a cold-heartedness. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The end is not yet. Those things will all come before the end, and the gospel will con- of the kingdom will continue to be preached. In verse 15, so then, when you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, standing in the inside of the temple, when that happens, that's how you'll know the end of this age is at hand. The abomination that makes desolate. A particular horrible thing that'll happen that Daniel the prophet talked about. Well, he talked about it in Daniel chapter 8. Antiochus Epiphanes does something that is so horrible in the temple, setting a statue of himself up as God. He makes himself to be worshipped as God, and it makes God's temple desolate, unclean, unpure, unsuitable for worship. That Antioch simply prefigures, as we'll see in Daniel chapter 11, that the end of the age, Antichrist will do something very similar to that. He will establish a, a, a statue of a man. Paul, Paul describes this. Paul unpacks this for us in Second um, Thessalonians 2, but I don't want to get there yet. Keep that idea of this abomination of desolation that Daniel talks about in view as we turn now to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 begins in the first year of Darius, the first year of Cyrus. It's dated for a reason because this is the year It hasn't happened yet, apparently, because Daniel prays for it to happen. But this is the very year that Cyrus is going to decree that Israelites should return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple so that there they can pray for him. It's going to happen in response to to, to Daniel's prayer to God. And so Daniel prays in this prayer. And when we first begin the study in Daniel, we started with chapter 9 because of things that were going on at the time. That Daniel steps down from his privileged position as a prophet of God and in right relationship with God. And he identifies himself with the sin of his people in this prayer. In the prayer in verses 4 to 6, Daniel says, We have been wicked. We've rebelled. We've turned away from your commands. In verses 7 to 19, Daniel describes the kind of rebellion that Israel has done and the results of that in the desolation of the sanctuary and the city. The desolation of the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The carrying away of everybody in Jerusalem which was destroyed and burnt. The carrying away of everybody away to Babylon, into exile, leaving the city desolate, empty. God's people have been separated from their city 
and from the temple, which was where they drew near to the presence of God. God's people are separated from God. That is the result of their rebellion, their wicked choices, Daniel, Daniel prays. And then in verses 20 to 27, an answer comes. An answer which Gabriel and Jesus both say that we need to understand. I call Daniel, verses nine, or chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, I call it replacing God. Because just as Antiochus did previously, we put a temple of a, a statue of himself in the temple of God to take the place of God, just as Antichrist will in the future, replacing God is described in Daniel chapter 9. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Israel themselves have replaced God. Israel has replaced God with other gods and other things. They have taken and decided for themselves what they would consider to be good and evil. They have decided what would be right and wrong. They themselves have taken the place of God, and it has separated them from God. It has made their city desolate. It has been, you could say, a sin of desolation, replacing God so I want, to, I want to read then, that's the result, Daniel's prayer, that this desolation might end. That they might be restored, not only to their city, not only to the temple, but that they would be restored in relationship with God. And in answer to that prayer, Gabriel comes. The angel is hurried from heaven to give Daniel an answer. While Daniel's still speaking and praying in verse 20, confessing my sin, he says, and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, the temple mount in Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. In the middle of this turmoil, in the middle of this desolation, Daniel, you, as mine, as my own, you are dearly loved. Don't lose sight of that. And therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The vision Goes, is, is, is now described. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to, f to do these things, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophecy, to anoint a most holy place, the temple, to make it no longer desolate, empty, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven sevens. Some translations say weeks there, but the, but the Hebrew is sevens. There will be seven sevens. Seven sevens of what? We'll have to talk about. And then after the seven sevens, there will be 62 sevens. And the city shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, which also followed the seven, then the Messiah shall be cut off and shall have nothing. 
And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he, this prince who's coming in the future, this ruler who will come, he will make a strong covenant with many for one week or one seven. Till there's been 69 sevens and now there's the one more. And for half of that seven, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. There will be an abomination above everything else that's been done and cutting off of the sacrifices. There will be something done that will be so bad that it will make the temple desolate until the end is poured out on the one who makes it desolate. So that's the vision. That's Gabriel's explanation of it. There's a lot there, but it's important that we understand. We're told to understand it. Jesus tells his disciples, let the reader understand this abomination that makes desolate that Daniel talked about. Gabriel here says several times, understand it. What is this abomination that makes desolate? What are these 77s? Let me put up a diagram that shows something about them. There's 77s in Daniel, and this is a foundational piece of end times prophecy. The book of the Revelation expands, fills in the, the details of this prophecy, this prediction. So he says there are seven sevens or weeks, and then there are 62 weeks. Together they make a period of 69 weeks, and then Messiah Prince comes. Messiah Prince comes as 69 weeks, but after 69 weeks, the Messiah, the anointed one, is cut off, and he shall have nothing. That's what Daniel 9 says, right? Well, if, you, if, if, we, if we understand, as is normal, because we've been talking about sevens of years in the book of Daniel already, if we understand the 77s as 77s of years, that would be 70 times 7, 490 years. If we understand it as 490 years, then 69 of those 70 would be 483 years. If we started, as the prophecy says, from the time when the decree goes out to rebuild the city, not to rebuild the temple, that was Cyrus, but the, but the, but the temple is there and yet unprotected. There are no walls. You remember the book of Nehemiah? The temple's been built, sacrifices have, have been restored, but there is no wall to protect people who live in Jerusalem. The city is not secured and finished. And so, so Nehemiah is told by Artaxerxes to go and to rebuild the city with moats, barriers, and walls, security, and open plazas then in the midst of the city that are part of a city that is surrounded by walls. So with, with, with plazas and borders, there's a city established. So you go from the, from the Nehemiah chapter 2, when that decree is given by Artaxerxes in answer to Nehemiah's prayer, does your prayer matter in what's going on in the world today? Heaven hurries when Daniel prays. Nehemiah prays, and Artaxerxes accepts his appeal, hears him, and gives an answer that moves God's purposes forward. From the day that that decree is given, if you move forward 483 years, 69 sevens of years, you wind up at A.D. 33, which according to best conservative dating today, that is to actually the day when Jesus enters Jerusalem on his, what's called his triumphal entry. 
to the day, it's 483 years. This is when you say, wow. Jesus comes, formally presents himself as Messiah right on time. Do you remember when Jesus says his hour had not yet come? I don't know what time he rolls into Jerusalem, but I suspect not only was he to the day, I suspect Jesus was to the hour. But I digress. So there are 69 weeks, but there are seven total. There are sent to put in 77s total, 490 years. We're still seven short. But there's one week coming. Now, in between the 69th and, the, and that one week that's coming that Daniel is, is, is described for Daniel, there are other things that happen. The city is destroyed. The, the prince who is to come is, is, is talked about. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D. And there's been continued to be turmoil and war since then, even as Jesus described, up until the end. But the book of Revelation fills in this end. The book of Revelation describes a time of great trouble, a time of great tribulation. How long is it in the book of Revelation? It's seven years. It's one week. That's why the great tribulation, the time of, uh, this, that most of the book of Revelation is described as, that's why it's often referred to in prophetic circles as Daniel's 70th week. Okay? It is the end. It is the finishing of what has been started. God is working to restore, and that restoration included the timing of his son's coming, and it also includes the culmination when he comes again. And the, and, the, and the time of his coming again is marked by an abomination of desolation. Okay, we've talked through the diagram. You've got a little sense of what that looks like. Paul also describes this. There was a time in the early church in the first century in the midst of Paul's ministry when some Christians were getting really excited about end times and prophecy and what's going to happen next and, and even just saying, you know, we're already in the middle of the tribulation. We're already in the middle of that 70th week. We're going to see Antichrist in the temple any day now. And Paul says, well, hold on a minute. There's some things that haven't happened yet that need to happen. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, first of all, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he, he, he strengthens them against the trouble that they are experiencing. The great trouble and persecution is what caused some of them to think we're already in the midst of the day of the Antichrist. But Paul clarifies that in chapter 2. He said, don't be concerned, don't be quickly shaken, don't be misled by a letter that's written as if it were from us. Where It's not. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will come, will not come, rather, unless the rebellion, and the Greek word is the apostasy, the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, is revealed. The one who epitomizes human sin and lawlessness in his person. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you about these things? So these are things that Paul described to them. Paul described to the church what the end was going to look like, what Daniel's 70th week was going to look like, what Jesus had described somewhat to his disciples, this abomination of desolation, like what is written in the book of Daniel, not only in chapter 9, but also what Antiochus did in chapter 8. He sets up a statue of himself. What is described that the Antichrist will do in Daniel chapter 11. He's going to establish an image of himself in the temple and demand that he himself will be worshipped as God. And that's going to be the final straw. That's going to be the end. And God will say, enough. And Jesus will come. And all of this, the whole 77s together, the purpose of it all is to finish, complete, wrap up, and conclude the transgression. To bring an end to sin, to atone for, to pay for, and cover, forgive our human guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's God's purpose. Let's not get too focused on just the rebellion, the horror of Antichrist. God's purpose is restoration. The purpose parallels what Daniel hungers for, what Daniel prays for, restoration to Jerusalem and worship of God in his temple. The restoration of humanity to right relationship with God and worship and dwelling with him in his presence in his kingdom on earth is going to be accomplished through the fulfillment of all the things that are here. Okay. Well, let's back up a little bit then. If that's true, then finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, seal, complete everything that has been prophesied to anoint and restore the most holy place, restore the temple to worship. Well, what is the transgression that is going to be finished, wrapped up, concluded, and done with? What is the transgression? Is the transgression that final act that Antichrist does that is so horrible that God can take no more? Is that the transgression, do you think? Well, where does that come from? Remember, it's a, it's a Satan-empowered man, the man of lawlessness, who does that. Don't lose sight of that. Where does that come from? Well, where does any of our sin come from? Where does all of our human sin originate? All the way back in Eden, right? All the way back with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden... When God says, all of this is for you, just not that one. And Satan comes along with a lie. And what does he say? You could be as gods, determining good and evil for yourself. You can for yourself know good and evil. You don't have to listen to God. You don't have to do what God says. You can decide what is good and evil for yourself, just like God does for himself. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. That is the lie that humanity bought into, right? And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is what our sin is every day. When I choose my way over God's way, what am I doing? I'm setting myself as if I were God and I can decide what's right for me in place of what God has said. God is going to be God or I'm going to be God. 
Jesus laid it out quite simply when he asked those who were following him and gathering around and listening to his teacher. He, he said they were listening to what he said, but he says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right? I'm reminded of the time when, when, when Peter... He has this vision, this white sheet comes down and all these unclean animals are on it there. He's at the, at the tanner's house and, and the sheet comes down and, and he's told three times, a voice from God says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And some of you hunters out there are saying, well, yeah, I'm all over that. Arise, kill, eat. But Peter says, no, Lord. He hasn't ever eaten anything unclean. But what's wrong with what he says? No, Lord. Is there something wrong with that? If he is Lord, how do I, how dare I say no? Whenever I say no to God's way and yes to my way, I, he is no longer Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Jesus says, and not do what I say? To call him Lord implies I will follow you. Okay? So, so I'm reminded of Mark chapter 8, verse 32, where Jesus has just laid out that, that he, is a, he is going to be arrested, rejected. He's going to be crucified. And then the third day, he's going to rise from again. And Peter pulls him aside. He says, he says, he says Lord, don't, don't, don't talk like that. Don't say those kind of things. You know, it's like if you say those kind of things, you know, they, might, they might happen. And we don't want that to happen. And Jesus rebukes him. In front of the others, harshly. What does he say? You wrestled with this when you read those words. What Jesus says to Peter, his inside guy. Jesus says to Peter, one of his own disciples. Jesus says to Peter, who is zealously, enthusiastically for him. Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Because you have set your mind on the things of man, not on the, not on the things of God. What Peter is doing in that moment is he's choosing for himself what will be right and what will be wrong. Rather than submitting his thinking to what God has said, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. John, the apostle in 1 John 4, tells us that in the midst of this age that we live in, the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. We're not waiting for the Antichrist one day to finally come. The, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the midst of the world. And I would suggest to you this morning, it's nearer than we would like to admit. Whenever I say, no, Lord, whenever I choose my way over God's way. And I want to just ask you right now, I'm not going to ask you to share anything. I'm going to ask you to think in your own mind one time in the last week where you know what God's way was, but you chose your way instead. When we do that, that looks a whole lot more like Antichrist than it looks like Jesus. Okay? And I say that not to make you feel terrible this morning. I, I, I say that because we need to have a right and healthy and godly view of what our own sin is. Because when we do, we have a much better view. We have a much better perspective on what God's redemption is. We have a much better grasp of what it is that God has done for us in Christ when I have been like this and yet God has done this for me in Jesus. I need to understand myself so that I can understand his forgiveness. This abomination that makes desolate. This abomination that separates God from his people at the temple. 
This abomination that leaves empty, my sin also leaves me empty. My sin separates me from that ongoing fellowship with God that I ought to have as a born-again believer and child of God because the Spirit of God even dwells in me. And yet by my own sin I can do what? Grieve the Holy Spirit. John, the apostle, the aged apostle, (laughs) warning the church, he says to them, if we walk in the light as our God is in the light, we have wonderful fellowship one with another. But if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet are walking in darkness, he says, we're lying. We're not doing the truth. We're fooling ourselves. We cannot walk in darkness and have fellowship with God at the same time. Fellowship with God is not found in darkness. Fellowship with God is found in his light. And so it is healthy for us to shine the light of God's truth onto our sin so that we can see it as it is and we can agree with God about what it is. To confess our sin is to say about our sin what God says about our sins. And God has said, this is right and this is wrong. Daniel's reminded of the Antichrist taking the role of God upon himself. And what when I, when, I, when I, as I read that story and I think through Israel's history, Israel did that. They took God's place for themselves and they went after other gods and they chose for themselves what they were going to do. They chose for themselves what would be right and wrong. They repeated the transgression, the transgression of the garden. They lived it out in life in ways that separated them from their relationship with God. Now we, in many ways, do the same thing. In our society today, for instance, let me give a couple of examples that I'll I'll, I'll give for a particular reason, which you'll see in a minute. But when we redefine marriage, for instance, when we cast aside what God has said marriage is, and we redefine marriage in some other way that makes sense to us today, what are we doing? We are making ourselves out to be God. God created and thus defined marriage. And when did he do that? Yeah, in Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah, just before the fall in Genesis 3. And when we, do, we redefine gender, which God created, when God created humanity in the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them, and we take what God has made and we do, redefine it as if we can make humanity in some other image. We are taking the place of God. I use those two examples, A, because they're contemporary today, but B, because they show that when we define for ourselves what's good and evil, we are taking God's place who himself alone has the right to say it's this way and not that way. I choose for myself what I'm going to do. I choose for myself what's going to be right and wrong. Daniel's reminded in this vision that they are not home yet. There are still more years. There are still more sevens. There is more completing and restoring that God is doing. And you and I live in the midst of that restoration. One life at a time. One person saved at a time. One person seeing, confessing, and having forgiven their sin at a time. We're in the midst of God's restoration. Between his cross and his coming. How do I know? 
from his creation that Jesus is coming? How do I know that that end sign is ever, ever going to be realized? That Jesus will come again? Because he came when he said he would come right on time. To the day. Maybe to the hour. We're not home yet. Desolation will continue. And that the transgression... The only one in that list that has that definite article, the transgression above all is man making himself to be God. Humanity choosing our own way instead of yielding and submitting ourselves to God's word in his way. And yet God will finish it. God will end sin because God will atone for, cover, remove, forgive iniquity. And God will bring in everlasting righteousness. This would be a very despairing message if it were not for that. If we were to remember again what our transgression looks like, that when I choose willfully for myself to sin, I look more like Antichrist than Jesus. If we left it there, this would be a very discouraging morning. But God didn't leave it there. That his purpose is to atone for our sin. And Jesus came to do just that. Before he would establish his kingdom, Messiah, Prince, Jesus, the Son of God, would be cut off, Daniel is told, and have nothing. He was cut off and had nothing so that we could have everything. He dies in order that we might have his life. He emptied himself and becomes a servant even to the point of death so that he might make us heirs of God and that he might give to us who believe in Jesus God's kingdom. This is what God has done for us. And the ugly of our sin, the whisperings of Antichrist that we ourselves sometimes listen to, only the darkness of that only brightens the beauty and the glory of what God has done for us and made us in contrast in Jesus. This is, this is why we moved our celebration of the Lord's table from the first Sunday to, of the month to this Sunday. Because Daniel describes it here, and if we're going to get this close of a look of our sin, we need to also remember individually, personally, our God's redemption of us in Jesus. Have you chosen sin over God's will? Have you? Be honest with yourself. You don't have to say anything out loud. Be honest with yourself. Have you chosen your own way over God's will? Have you chosen to do what you wanted instead of what God's word says? Yes, I have. Can our guilt of saying, not your will, God, but my will I'll do, can that ever be forgiven, removed? Yes. That's what the Lord's table is all about. That's what the body of Christ given for us. That's what the blood of Jesus shed for us for the forgiveness of our sin is all about. Daniel 9 reminds us in his own prayer that the confession of our sin opens the way for God to send his messenger of God's forgiveness, God's atonement, God's righteousness for us, and God's restoration. This week, I was shocked personally it, it caught me unexpectedly to see for myself that, that, that my sin looks something like Antichrist. That was more than I expected. But what it has done is shown me how much grander 
than maybe I realized is God's redemption in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. So as we approach the Lord's table, and if you have not yet, if you didn't see the elements when you came in, that the, that the individual cup with the wafer on the top is on the table right in front of the um, main entrance doors as you came in. If you did not get those then, go and choose your own now. We're not passing things back and forth to be handling among ourselves, uh, just again caring for our community. But if you did not receive those, do it now. And as Pastor Ryan comes to lead us in remembering and celebrating in this table our God's forgiveness. I want to invite the worship team to come up as well. This message this morning leads us to this table, right? To communion, remembering what Jesus has done for us. And with that in mind, I want to go back a few verses, back to the beginning of this um, chapter in Daniel. Or Daniel has this wonderful prayer that really parallels our own prayer of confession to God. The, Daniel recognizes the end of the 70 years is coming. You know, God, you've promised. He's read in the book. He's promised. God, you're going to restore us. And yet, there's this sin. And he identifies himself with the people of Israel in confessing this sin. In verse 4, it says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He recognizes the sin of the whole nation as well as our own sin. And we have to do that. That's where we start with remembering Jesus' sacrifices with our sin. Because if there's anyone in here that is not sinful... It has never sinned. You don't need to be here, right? But we know that's not true. All have sinned. And coming to this table is remembering, confessing our sin before God. And yet there's hope. He spends a lot of verses on that sin, confessing it. But then when he gets to verse 17, he says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. We come to God and appeal to him not because we've done something right, but because of the mercy that he's had for us. Daniel's looking forward to a future hope, and yet we look back something that has already been accomplished for us. And there's a key thing in here. He's talking about make your face shine upon your sanctuary, the temple. And yet in 2 Corinthians 6, we find, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We are the abomination of desolation, right? We have sinned and rebelled against God, and yet we are also the temple of the living God, now because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's what this table is about. So we go to 1 Corinthians 11, remembering that. Then on the Lord, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks. Let's pause right there, and let's give thanks, confessing our sin and remembering what Jesus has done for us. 
Lord, we come before you this morning as wretched sinners. Lord, recognizing that we are sinful, broken people, that we're made in the image of God and yet made ourselves idols. God, we confess that sin and recognize our wrongdoing before you. And yet, God, we appeal to your mercy. We appeal looking back at what you have already done for us, that you sent your son, your only son, down to live as a man and then to die on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty, God, in our place. And I, and I pray that we would remember that and rejoice in that this morning because we have hope because of the blood of Jesus. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember the blood of Jesus for your sins. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Lord, we rejoice in this today as we set our minds on Calvary, on the cross, and we praise your name, the name of the Lord our God. We remember what you have done for us, that you sent your Son You sent yourself to die on the cross for our sins. And we rejoice in that this morning, proclaiming your death until you come. And I pray that you would be working this out in our lives, bringing fresh and new remembrance and understanding of this for us today. That despite the grievous sin that we have done against you, you have had mercy on us and given us life in your name. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.